0: How is it that the Lord makes us more holy? How does he do that? What, is, what does he bring into your life? <laughs> I was just going to say, yeah, it's to use the sticky wicket where we find ourselves in circumstances in which we realize that Yeah, difficulty, suffering. You know, hardship is for holiness. Now, that was one of the big lessons I think we learned when we went through First Peter a while back. You know, hardship is for holiness, but it's also to remind you of the certain hope that you have in God. You know, he, he is going to make these, like you have been born again in him. Uh, you do love him, though you don't see him. And he will come again and restore all things to himself. There's a late preacher named Leonard Ravenhill. Maybe you've listened to him, maybe you haven't. Uh, One of the things that he mentioned in the message, he, he recognized the importance of God's people being a holy people. And so he said one of the things that he prayed was, God make me holy or kill me. And he said, if I'm not going to be holy and a good witness for God I don't need to be alive like the only reason I exist is to be a, a holy witness for God so he prayed, you know, God God make me holy or kill me And he said about two weeks into it his life became so difficult and fraught with so many troubles that he said, Lord, if you're going to make me holy, kill me <laughs> which is, in a way, exactly what we want, you know, we, we want the Lord to, to put, you know, who we were to death, and we want to see the life of Christ in us, and and coming through us, and we see that with the Israelites here in Exodus, is God brings all of this hardship into their lives, and it's it's not meant just to do ill to them. He's, as we've already learned, he's meaning to do good to them. And, you know, after they had seen all of these miraculous things with the plagues, the Passover, the Red Sea, the parting of water and all of these things, it, in a very short amount of time, all of a sudden they're, they're delivered. They're out in the wilderness they're alive, they've been freed from their slavery in <laughs> Egypt, but there's this issue with water, and it's bitter. But the connection isn't, well, I mean, if God can you know, part the, the Red Sea, then he can fix this water problem too. But instead they go, well, it would be better if God had just killed us than brought us out here. But if they would have just waited a little bit longer, they would have seen God was... Always going to make the water sweet. You know, he was going to provide salvation. But what he did in depriving them of water was to put a focus on that he's their provider. That's one of the things on my little chart thing here that I'm going to explain. And which, you know, a lot of times when we talk about, you know, God and his role in our lives. You've probably often heard me say that he, he's the one who protects, provides, and guides. You know, that's a point that's brought up in, in our text here in Exodus 17. This message is about God being our rock. You know, what does it mean that God is our rock? It means that he's the one who protects us. He's the one who provides for us. And he's our present guider. That's what I have. Protector, provider, present guider. I added uh, the word present in there because he's the God who's with. He, you know, he's in relationship with us. He's not distant, he's near. Uh, he's, he's not somewhere out there and you need to get him to show up, he's with. And that's the teaching that comes out of God being our rock. Now when it comes to things that we know God being for us, you know, the, the number one title that's used of Jesus is that he's a lamb. The number two title is rock, which we know the lamb one really well, but I think the rock thing will start to stand out to you a little bit more, especially as it's built on from this point, which is building on what was prophesied in Genesis fifty nine or 49, there isn't a 59. Genesis 49, there is this promise of, there's this one who would, come from Judah, from the tribe of Judah. He would be the scepter, which is like, well, who who carries scepters? Well, kings and shepherds. So he's going to be a king-shepherd ruler. He's going to be called the scepter. The other thing you find out is he's going to be called the shepherd of Israel. He's going to be the one who will shepherd his people, provide for him. You know, all of this rock stuff is tied up in that idea too. And he would also be the stone of Israel. That's a title for him which is going to tie into this word rock and stuff. You know, you can use the word stone. You can use the word rock. they be referring to the same sort of thing. And in here, in Exodus 17, we see the rock, the rock that protects them, the, the rock that provides living water, the, the rock who is there with them and it instructs them, it guides them, it leads them. The other thing that you're going to see after the Lord provides this test is, that then there's this battle that's brought up with Amalek, which you, you might remember when the Lord originally brought him out into the, the wilderness, they went in this crazy sort of loop to get out there, you know, one to entice Pharaoh to come out, but the other reason was if the Israelites passed through the land of the Philistines, you know it's like, well, then they might just turn back. You know, the, the Lord knew the hearts of these people that if they saw the threat of war, they weren't going to trust them. And they would just turn back on them. Well, here we have another war that comes up with Amalek, but after God teaches them through the rock that, you know, I I protect you. I I provide for you. And it's like, now here's Amalek, next test. (laughs) You know, you're going to trust me to protect you and provide for you and to to keep, you know, my covenant promises to, to Abraham and to continue my creation purpose of making my name known, not just to you as a nation that I'm building, but internationally, that you would be a blessing to the nations, and in that, the thing that's developed about God's name and the book that's about God's name is that Yahweh is my banner. And what you learn from that is the the point of that in the midst of this battle with Amalek is it's about glory and faith. So, what does it mean to uphold that the Lord is your is your banner wants to say well all the glory goes to him he's the one who's doing this but that's also a display of our faith is in him you know our faith isn't in our military strength or strategy or you know thinking of something like not being in a battle but in our own ability to take care of some sort of issue with uh our strength whether we think we have the skills or the money or the know-how to do something so no our, our faith is in God alone that he can do this and we want all the praise and the glory to go to him alone because he's the one who supplies the victory ultimately. Well, These are the things that we want to see in this text as we continue to work through it. And in a way, when you look through this, when we started in chapter 15, we have this issue with water in the beginning and we come to this issue with water again. And it might kind of seem like we're coming to the end of like the TV episode here with Israel and what's what's happening. But there's really a surprise ending to this. It doesn't end with water. It goes to, you're looking at Israel and saying, man, I'm wondering if these people are going to believe. I wonder if these people are going to listen to God. I mean, look at all of the stuff he's doing for them and how gracious he is to them. But the story keeps going on with, well, look at what happens with Amalek and how, God's plan is extending out to the nations and he's being faithful to judge those who have cursed Israel. And where this episode really ends is with Jethro. we are gonna get there next week, Lord willing. But the person who, who ends up believing and being in awe of God's deliverance and actually having faith in him and giving glory to him is Gentile Jethro. Yeah, it's kind of the surprise ending to the whole thing. Like, I didn't expect it to go this way you know what yeah there's Moses and his you know, Gentile wife and his Gentile father-in-law and you know Israel won't won't believe about this deliverance that's happened but when Moses comes back to his father-in-law and he said remember I told you I was going to go back to Egypt and uh, I was going to deliver the people well here's what happened. <laughs> I mean, nobody else is going to tell you this because nobody else believes it. But after he told him these things about how Yahweh had delivered him, Jethro says, "Blessed be Yahweh who delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians." Said, so, "Well, why didn't anybody else say that?" <laughs> but it is. It, it's. It's exactly that. But you see that it it's not uh, extending because of the the good works of Israel. You know, it it was, salvation was never going to be dependent on anybody's works. You know, their work to to try to earn it or their works to even to extend it to somebody else. You know, God was going to take care of all of that and even extend that sort of uh, evangelistic call through the failure of Israel to others. Because the, the nations would be learning about God's salvation through judgment just by watching what was happening. And some people would be judged, like the Amalekites, and some would see this and they, they would be saved. They'd say, Wow, like look at the God who bears with a people like you. Like He's awesome. And then they end up believing in Him. It, but you know, it's the, you know, the sons of Israel who a lot of them are you know, missing out on seeing what's really happening here. So coming back to Exodus chapter 17, this is what we read. We'll start in this first seven verses. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin according to the commandment of Yahweh, and they camped at Rephidim. And there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people contended with Moses and said, give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, why do you contend with me? Why do you test Yahweh? But the people thirsted there for water and they grumbled against Moses and said, why now have you brought us up from Egypt to put us and our children and our livestock to death with thirst? So Moses cried out to Yahweh saying, what shall I do to this people a little more and they will stone me? Then Yahweh said to Moses, pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So he named the place Massa and Meribah because of the contending of the sons of Israel and because they tested Yahweh, saying, is Yahweh among us or not? Now you can see that this is a pretty desperate situation here. And this involved all the congregation of Israel. It doesn't say some of them. You know, this is all are under sin. You know, all fall short of the glory of God. You know, there, there is no one who is good. There is no one who is righteous. Their, their mouths are filled with bitterness and cursing and their feet are swift to shed blood. And you see all of these things and the law pointing that out. The law instruction is showing the sons of Israel what kind of reprobate hearts they really have. And they're so backwards that when the Lord tests them to prosecute their sinfulness so that they would see their need for a savior, they end up trying to prosecute God through Moses. So they contend with them. And they're trying to say, we're, no, we're not on trial here. God's on trial. And we get that you're the mediator guy, so we're going after you. And what's one of the things that's interesting in all of this is to just see how, how daring they are, you know who, who wants to come and contend with the God of the plagues? It's just not a good idea. I, I mean, if you had somebody that got you know a little heated, a little emotional, and they're like, "Let's go contend with God through Moses and say, hey, remember the plagues thing that happened? And you know Moses does still have that staff. I don't know. Maybe we should calm down a little bit. But they had seen that. They had seen the plagues, the Red Sea. They had, they had already experienced that God provided them water when they asked for it and they didn't deserve it. He provided for them even the food that they, they wanted and the food that they would need. And he was faithfully doing that. So we're still learning about what the law does and that it, you know, it points out what's in the human heart. And what you see here is that the sons of Israel are like Pharaoh, they have hardened hearts. Uh, They won't believe, they won't listen. Uh, They're being called to obedience to what God has said but they're responding like Pharaoh, like, you know, he's not even here. We're not even gonna acknowledge that God is here, we're just gonna talk to Moses uh they don't believe they don't believe in him they won't listen to him they don't want to enter into his rest which you can see the how later biblical authors say the same thing if you turn with me to psalm 95 it recounts this event Psalm 95 reads, O come, let us sing for joy to Yahweh. Let us make a loud shout to the rock of our salvation. So Yahweh is a rock. You remember that. It'll make sense of Paul later when we get to that. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a loud shout to him with songs of praise. For Yahweh is a great God, a great king above all gods, in whose hand are the depths of the earth. The peaks of the mountains are also his. The sea is his, for it was he who made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before Yahweh, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not not harden your hearts, as in Meribah, as in the day of Massa in the wilderness. When your fathers tried me, they tested me, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, there are people who wander in their heart and they do not know my ways. Therefore, I swore in my anger, they shall never enter into my rest. I'm sure now, you know, having been going through Exodus for as long as we have you, you hear all of the events of Exodus and that history and how that psalm ties into that and the direct tie to what you should be seeing is the hardened hearts of the sons of Israel. Like They should be singing for joy at the goodness of God and how he had provided for them. And he's saying, learn from their example. Yeah, These things were written down for your example so that you would learn not to, to desire evil like they did. And in their evil, you notice, they don't go just from you know asking for water at this point. They demand it. They're saying, give us water. We, we demand that we be provided for. Uh, we're not asking anymore. We're not waiting anymore. We're insisting that we get this. Here you see that they were testing God. But what was it that they were testing about God in his character? They, they were testing his faithfulness, which should have been, you know, it was evident in the fact that there's a bunch of children of Abraham now. And he's been faithful to that covenant, even though like the, the seed of the serpent tried to squash us and kill us by drowning our children and then hard slavery and beating us to death and killing some of us. We're here, look at us. There's a ton of us. Now, what they do in this relationship is they try to flip around instead of submitting to God to try to get God to submit to them. Only God has the right to test people, but they try to flip it around and say, you know what? We're the judge now. You sit on the seat. Uh, We're going to be the ones who test you now. Uh, We're going to decide what is right or wrong in our own eyes. Israel is acting as if they were God, and they had the right to test their instructor and creator. And so you see here that what the law does is that it exposes the the reprobate heart. It exposes the sinful heart, the the backward heart. The, The law reveals that you're satanic. Uh, You're you're like the serpent in the garden who would question God's word and then contradict it because ultimately you want to be God. You want to be the one who defines the knowledge of good and evil. You don't want to submit to God's definition of it. You want to decide what it is for yourself and then tell him how it works. And in doing this, they're, they're trying to manipulate God. They'd say, well, okay, if, if he's so faithful, then do this. Perform a sign for us, and then we will believe you. But they should have already known, well, God, God will provide for us. Uh, even when we were cranky about the water that other time, like he still gave it to us instead of drowning us in it, though he should have, he just let us drink sweet water. And then when he gave us food, but you know we wanted meat, I mean, he gave us he gave us the meat that we wanted, even when we, even when we weren't nice about how we asked for it or anything. But they're not seeing any of that. They're totally blind to it. You know, They're not hearing what is happening either. They're deaf to it. And they're refusing to wait for God to take care of them. And the way that they test God is they're expecting him to do something special for them, even though they haven't earned it and they don't deserve it, and that, that's how we, we test God, you know, we switch that teacher role around. We think that okay, I'm going to instruct God. I'm not going to be praying, Your will be done. I'm going to pray, God. These are my requests, and I'm expecting you to do them quickly. That is how we end up, you know, testing God. You know, as James talks about, you know, we we ask with wrong motive. He says, we should ask with submission to that. We want our hearts to conform to his will, but we shouldn't ask and thinking God should conform to our will and in our timeline. It should be the other way around. And you see, when we're testing God, there's this degree of doubt that's in it because we think, you know, he's probably not going to do good to me. And so I got to. Like manipulate this, control this, push this thing along some other way, or you think in these circumstances, you know I deserve that it be different than this because I'm wise enough to know that it would be better for me to be comfortable than in pain right now, but we should recognize that you know we're we're not that wise, and I don't know anybody who's learned a lick of wisdom in a moment of uh, comfort or ease and all the wisdom that we gain in life it's thing it's through things like hardship and funerals. here in verse three is the people thirsted for water and grumbled against Moses and what they say is you know why why now have you brought us up from Egypt to put us and our children and our livestock to death with thirst? Now, I want you to th- just think about what really happened with their children and their livestock, and why is this question absurd? There was the Passover. Yeah. <laughs> the children and livestock were actually spared. So. <laughs> yeah. Uh, their firstborn lived. Yeah. Uh, their, their cattle, their their livestock lived. So that's obviously, Yahweh didn't bring us out here to kill us. I mean, look what he did. Our, our children are alive. We got the livestock with us. It's the Egyptians who have those problems, but they're thinking, but we wish that we were them. It would be better to be them. And you see the, the backwardness and the stupidity of sin in this way. and. What they're denying here is God's protection. God has never protected us. We don't even think he's going to protect us now. It's like, well, how did you people get here? (laughs) Like, what happened to get you here? So what what the law does here is it exposes that they call good evil and evil good. It exposes the backwardness of the sinful heart and it also exposes you know, that that sort of heart is murderous. As I had mentioned earlier, their feet are swift to shed blood. And this is why Moses says, you know, a little more and they will stone me. Because he recognizes that what they're doing is saying, Moses, what you've done in bringing us out here is attempted murder. And he knows that the, the way that that works out legally is that he gets stoned for attempting murder. He says these people are trying to blackmail me and have me murdered. And he and he's and he and don't miss the fact that Moses is praying. <laughs> you know, Moses is a is a praying man, and and trying to lead a people like this. There there's an example of how you know, how how do you lead people who are of hardened heart like this? You pray to God. <laughs> That he, that he would help you and protect you and uh, provide for you uh, who has a who has a MacArthur study Bible and wants to read for us the study note on 174 the leader turned Moses petition was not an isolated incident. His life is characterized by prayer and by turning to God for solutions, problems and crises. and you see that the you know M- Moses is giving the the example that the people need. I, what do you do in a situation like this you you turn to God in prayer, but instead they turned on him, which you see a right example in all of this. You know, what do you do amidst this sort of hardship? Well, you want to be given to prayer and to turn to God, not to turn on other people and to look to him for solutions to problems and different things that that come up because you know that he's your protector, your provider, that he's with you to guide through these sort of things. And so how do you... You know, not only remind people of praying, as you see in Moses, but there's something else they need to be reminded of, which we see in in Exodus chapter 17 and verse 5. And you'll you'll pick up the important word here and what happens. He says, Then Yahweh said to Moses, Pass. You know, why why pass? Why? Why have we heard this word before in a significant event for like people that should be judged, but God saved them? You know, this is, this is that same word. It's the same word for Passover. And so essentially what, what Yahweh is saying, well, well, what do these people need? He's like, well, they deserve judgment, but they need salvation, just like in the Passover. So This is Moses, this is what I want you to do. Reenact the Passover in front of them. And so he passes over before the people. He says, take with you some of the elders. And he says, take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Now, I mean, why not? I mean, why mention the staff and the Nile together? Why not like, the staff in the Red Sea? Why do you think that he zeroes in on the staff and the Nile Yeah, it's a, it's a reminder of the plagues. It's a reminder in Passover of blood judgment, right? And so they remember all of this was by the strength of God. You know, the staff was a reminder of that. And in this case, it's, you know, it's coming as a warning because it, Moses is thinking, oh yeah, I remember what happened with the, the staff in the Nile and Pharaoh, but he says, but now it's same staff, Nile, sons of Israel. So he's saying, these people should have their bloodshed. These people deserve judgment. And the law is instructing that, that they deserve judgment. But remember the, uh, the other thing we talked about, the, the, the law points out sin in the heart, but it also points to what? points to mercy through a mediator and yes, so now we have Moses being the mediator but it it points to the means of salvation which is exactly what we see in verse 6 now he says behold i will stand before you there on the rock at horeb now where's horeb there's some other synonyms for this place yeah this is, we're, we're back at the, the burning bush location. We're back at Sinai. We're back at Horeb. We're, we're back at the mountain of God. And there, you know, Rephidim is the, the camping place that's right next to it. And you got to remember about this, you know, the, the nature of the law primarily is to instruct. The instruction comes from the mountain. So it's like, well, you know, what do we learn about God from here, from you know, the bush up to this moment, this whole event here is all preparation for Sinai. It's all a movement toward that from Egypt moving to the Mount of God. Well, why have the rocket at Horeb and why strike the rock? Like who should be struck here? But a substitute gets struck. So you see you see the connections in in the passover it's like you guys should be struck lamb substitute okay number one name for god lamb a, now this situation you guys should be struck what gets struck a substitute it's a rock god's number two name they come in order and then if you look at the frequency of how they're used that's all they're also that's how it works out at least according to the computer search that I did. (laughs) Sometimes I can get those things wrong, but I'm pretty sure that I'm right on that. (laughs) So this, you know, this is also the the mount of instruction. It's the mount of instruction that gives you a knowledge of your sinfulness and your need for a substitute righteousness and a substitute judgment taker, which is going to be the rock And so he's basically saying, here's how you're to to remember the mountain. Strike. And then water pours out. Like, God gets struck. And then living water comes out. Because it's like, well, who's the substitute? Well, it's the rock. Who's the rock? It's God. He's the stone of Israel. And so you see here that there's this, I mean, this is all, gospel evangelism to the Israelites. You know, it's it's a real life narrative gospel tract, you know, playing right out before their eyes to explain to them, this is how salvation works. You deserve to be struck, but God substitutes himself to, to take the strike that you deserve to, to save you and to satisfy his judgment and to express his great love for you while demonstrating that he's just and the justifier. Now, you'll remember in the the Abrahamic covenant, God said, "I'll, I'll curse those who curse you and I'll bless those who bless you. But what has Israel done to other sons of Israel? Have they cursed them or blessed them? They've, they've cursed them, so you know, they, they should be cursed. You know, according to the Abrahamic covenant, they should be cursed. So it's like, well, what's the solution? Because here's the tension. God also promised he's going to bless those who bless them, so they have to exist. They can't go out of existence. Uh, God can't discontinue his promise with Israel at some point. So how do you take a people that they deserve to, to be totally cursed, absolutely destroyed, but God also has to uphold his faithfulness and bringing blessing to them and through them to the other nations. Say, like, well, the only solution is a substitute rock that can provide what is needed and to be struck in their place. The, the only solution is that God is cursed, that he takes upon the curses that they deserve to satisfy his justice and to give them the living water that they actually need. And in all of this, uh, the way that Israel responds at Massa and Meribah, this is the, this is the place of testing and quarreling. Says so this is, you know, when you really want to just narrow down what the issue is with the sinful human heart, it's that it, it tests God by doubting his goodness And just wants to quarrel with him or other people about their own desires and their own passions. And the way that they tested him was, you know, is Yahweh among us or not? Why why is that uh, an outrageously unfaithful statement? Is Yahweh among us or not? Yeah. Yeah, well let's just see if we can even come up with a list of things that he's done, you know, being present with us and see if he, we can even come up with one thing or not. <laughs> it's like, you know, there's a ton of them. Well the first I will stand there on the rock. Yeah, because you're, what you're seeing is that uh, this is the lesser Moses being a picture of the greater Moses. You know, It's the lesser med- mediator being a picture of the only mediator between God and man. So he says, yeah, You're going to strike the rock. There's a mediator, there's a substitute rock that's struck. He says, That's the connection point to the God who is before you. And it's like, well, you know, how do these, you know, elders of Israel or anybody in Israel have that restored connection to God? It's through the mediator. It's through the, the substitute rock being struck. Not to get off track, but then in numbers, yeah. in the rock, it's, it's not, God is not really the same presence of, of, Yeah. So this is a good point. That we don't want to overlook that issue in Numbers 20. Now, how many times was, in God's plan, was the rock to be struck? One time. That was it. So then when it gets to Numbers 20, and you have, you know, Israel's had some more kids. Their kids are, you know, like father, like son. Water problems. They respond the same way. And God says, speak to the rock. Because he says, when I gave my original gospel tract, the picture that I laid out was the the rock is struck once and it provides salvation for all from one strike. And you're, you're to say that I'm the one who does it. But what happens in Numbers 20 is that Moses is told, speak to the rock. But then what Moses does is he doesn't uphold you know, Yahweh as his banner. He says, you want, some, you want some water? I will give you water. And he strikes the rock twice. And so he, he messes up you know, the Messiah rock picture, which is why it's a, you know, Moses doesn't get to go into the promised land. You know, he gets judged for messing up what God was trying to evangelize and teach through his law. Yeah, one strike, that's it, yeah, yeah. Uh, Exodus teaches you how salvation works, teaches you everything about how salvation works. Uh, It's, you know, the basis for how you understand your soteriology, which is the study of salvation. It's all laid out right here. You know, Doctrine of God 101, Salvation 101 is the book of Exodus. And you see that even, at, okay, the, the gospel of John, for example, uh, he the way that he preaches that Jesus is Yahweh is that he just works through all of Israel's history in order. And his gospel, starting in the beginning, was the word. And he works through the days of creation and the, and the signs that are performed. He works through Israel in the wilderness and all of the events that yeah, you know, they happen in the same order. You know, it's water and bread. All of these same teachings come back in order in the Gospel of John, because he recognizes, well, if you're gonna teach somebody about salvation, you teach them Exodus. And so that's what he does. And so that's what, yeah, you know, that's one of the things that I, I'm trying to teach when I say that there's three Exodus books in the Bible. One is Exodus, the other one's John, and the other one's Revelation but they're the the three stages of the whole redemption plan. All right. So with the water from the rock, there's a picture of Yahweh standing before the rock. Moses is striking the rock, and Yahweh is being identified with the rock and with the result that water flows out that, the people would drink and the point being is that you know when when Yahweh himself substitutes himself and he's struck that's how you're saved it's when you don't get what you deserve but Yahweh takes it on him himself to redeem you You also see this in uh, at the end of the Gospel of John. You remember one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, and what came out—blood and water. Right? It's a you know well what came out—the uh, Nile and the rock. You know, it's time. the Nile judgment that you deserved, and the living water that you needed. Yeah, you know, it's not just some random insignificant thing in John. It's like, well, why did blood and water come out? It's like, well, because Jesus is the lamb and the rock. He's both of those things. And just as Jesus taught, he said, you know, whoever drinks the water that I give him will never thirst. He says, indeed, the water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life, because ultimately Jesus is the one who provides what we need. He protects us from the wrath of God, and he is Emmanuel, the God who is with us and guides us as our instructor. And even though God is tested, you see how he responds with grace. Like He, instead of just judging them and wiping them out, he says, I want you to remember this event because it's going to explain to you how I'm going to save you. He says, what I'm going to do in this situation and just instead, of, instead of just talking about how bad you are, I'm going to preach the gospel to you through Moses and through the creation and these things that are around you. So this helps us to make sense of, you know, when we get to Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, 4, and he says, they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. That's, that wasn't some like, later revelation that Paul got, and there was just some hidden spiritual meaning that nobody got until the apostle Paul wrote that. It's like, this was always the point. It was just, Paul actually understood how to interpret the Bible rightly. I think that that's clear. As we, you know, we've worked through this and we've seen it. We're like, "Oh, the rock is the Messiah rock." I get it. I see it. And as you keep reading, especially when you get to the end of Deuteronomy, you can uh, read this on your own sometime. At the very end of Deuteronomy, Moses comes back to talking about uh, Massa and Meribah and then he performs his great rock song. All right, and. It, where he's just like, the Lord is our rock. You know, he's the rock who provides for us. He's the rock who has protected us. He says all of these sort of things that we're talking about. And so it's not you know, ambiguous to make the connection that you know, the Lord is the rock. And you're gonna see it now when you read your Bible, like, how did I ever miss this? It's like the whole Bible is like a rock song, you know? <laughs> Yeah, y'all are Christians. I know you don't listen to rock music, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Credence Clearwater Revival is not a Christian band. Okay. <laughs> All right, coming back to now seeing that how, how the Lord is our banner, this is... Exodus 17, eight, we'll pick up there. Then Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, choose men for us and go out and fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will take my stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. And Joshua did as Moses told him to fight against Amalek and Moses, Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. So it happened when Moses raised up his hand that Israel prevailed and when he let down, When he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed, but Moses' hands were heavy. Then they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, and Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other. Thus his hands were steady until the sun set. So Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then Yahweh said to Moses, write this in a book as a memorial and recite it in Joshua's hearing that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and named it Yahweh is my banner. And he said, because he has sworn with a hand upon the throne of Yah, Yahweh will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. Here we're reminded of God's Genesis 3.15 plan of the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. and. We see this nation, Amalek, which is a descendant of Esau, who comes and persecutes the sons of Israel. And in cursing them, we see that they're going to be cursed, which is what happens. But we also see the number one value of God's people was always to be faith. This is what was taught through the whole story of Abraham's life. He said, all the children of Abraham, the the number one thing that identifies them is faith in God alone, which Israel doesn't have at this point. But another promise of Abraham is that they would have a a global impact that would extend not only to Egypt, but also to the uh, Amalekites and also the Midianites and on and on. Because God said, in you, all the nations will be blessed. And here at the end of chapter 17, we see the negative impact of Israel in the world. And in chapter 18, you're gonna see the positive impact when Gentile Jethro believes. But in in all of this, you're you're seeing this stark contrast between Israel's unfaithfulness and God's faithfulness. Israel means God fights for you. And he's doing that for them through all of this. But he's also... Fighting not only that, that enemy, the Amalekites, he's going to be fighting with the enemy of their own sinful hearts. And within all of these words that are happening here, when it says that Moses' hands were heavy, you know, this is uh, a word that's also translated as glory, where it was translated as hardening Pharaoh's heart with strength. Uh, Moses's hands, you know, when they were heavy, they couldn't, they couldn't uphold the glory of God Is uh, the point that's made. They couldn't uphold the weightiness of God's glory in everything, but that needs to be done. So I mean, what do you need to to be upheld by to uphold God's glory? A stone. You need a stone under you. <laughs> uh, you need to be on the stone of Israel to be Upholding the glory of Israel. And it says, when that happened, it says, Thus his hands were steady, which this is the word, uh, it's also translated faith. It's, it's a word that you'll understand in English, Amen. You know, when uh, Abraham amen the Lord, you know, he believed in him and it was counted to him as righteousness. It's that same word, but what's being conveyed here is that it's that faith and upholding God's glory on the rock that steadies you. It's faith in him that, that steadies you. And this is all building into, you know, what that statement about God's name, Yahweh is my banner, means. And verse 14, we see that Moses is to write this. You know, this is the first commandment for scripture to be written in the Bible. If you ever wondered who wrote the book of Moses, this verse tells you, Yahweh said to Moses, write this. <laughs> he didn't say, ah, oh, have some other mysterious group of people write it and attribute some of it to you and have some other people try to decode and figure out which guy it was and Just deny that you ever wrote this like Yahweh told you to. Moses wrote the book of Moses. And it's pretty simple sort of stuff. And this was to be written as a memorial and to be recited in Joshua's hearing, which you're going to have that happen in Deuteronomy when the the mantle is passed to Joshua. They'll say, you know, Joshua, remember the first time that you showed up in the Bible? (laughs) It was when God was faithful to help you to 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 do what he had called you to do, but to also show he's the one who fights for you. Uh, he's the shepherd warrior. All you have to do is trust in him. And he says, "I'm gonna." I'm. It's a reminder that God's going to be faithful to curse those who curse you. He's going to blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And how this pans out in. Scripture and God's global plan. Just some other connection points moving forward that are of interest to you. Is you might recall how Saul was to blot out the Amalekites, but you're thinking, but he doesn't. So he's like bad king. He didn't do what he was supposed to do, and it's like, well, you know, if he's not the right right king, you know, from the tribe of Benjamin, you know, who's it going to be? Well. When you move in history to Mordecai and Esther, they're also from the tribe of Benjamin. And during that time, God is the one who does what Saul wouldn't do. You know, he destroys the Amalekites of which Haman is one of them. Yeah. so it it answers this question, well, is God gonna fulfill his promise? It's like, man, it's been a long time. There's still Amalekites around. Uh, Nobody will deal with them. And uh, now in Esther, it's looking like, you know, Israelites are never going to have, you know, the, the military government power to do that ever. Like it looks pretty hopeless. But the book of Ruth shows that God never forgets his promises and he'll always prove his faithfulness. So chapter 17 ends with God launching Israel's international plan and teaching what it is that uh, Yahweh is my banner, which is what that means is, you know, it's not like a piece of cloth that's hanging up in the air. It's uh, tied to that staff that was held up, to, which was the reminder of God's strength, which, you know, a lot of the stuff, you know, how it get it's going to get tied together and numbers with the staff that's to be looked to when the people are afflicted with the serpents as well. So you have the whole serpent affliction thing coming together, God's strength, the staff, salvation through judgment, all of that sort of stuff comes together in that. But you see what was happening when you know M- Moses, what he needed to uphold for the Amalekites and the, the Israelites to see in this whole thing was you know, Yahweh is my banner. That all the glory goes to him. And when we can stand on the stone. In unity together with faith in God, he's glorified and enemies are judged and people are brought to faith in him. That's what happens. So we're saying this, this is how uh, salvation life is worked out. You know, it's worked out in community. It can't be a, a congregation that's grumbling and bickering and fighting with one another about different things. Because you see, it's not, you know, Moses couldn't get his hands up himself. Uh, you have Aaron and her supported his hands. You know, it shows you know, these men were gifted to do what you know, Moses needed so that Moses could use his speaking gifts and they could use their serving gifts. You, know, you can see how this, you know, it's also instructing us very early on in how the Christian life works, you know, within the church. You know, we need one another to steady one another you know, on the stone, so that we're standing there in faith and steadying one another in the in the shared faith that we have to be a community of those who have faith that God is our protector, our provider, and our present guide. Our on our on time help. So we praise God for that. And I have to head up to the hill to preach at another church, but next week I will be back and hopefully for many, many weeks in a row. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord, you are our rock. You're the one who protects us in all of our needs that we have, whether it be water, food, or clothing. You protect us from temptation. You protect us from the evil one. You provide everything that we need so that we can seek your kingdom and righteousness from needed daily provision, from needed fellowship with other faithful believers that we would be steadied on your character and being reminded of who you are. And we pray that you would indeed use us that way to edify one another, that we would be that living building of living stones that build up one another. We thank you that you are the God who is with us, that you're not distant, that we don't have to do some special thing to get you to come to us, that you're already with us and even by your spirit in us. We pray that we would be a people who would uphold you as our banner, that we would do all things to your glory, all things and trusting in you, all things in faith. We pray that you would strengthen our faith in you and are giving glory to you whether we eat or drink or whatever we do. Your name be praised. Amen.